Well, why don't you one more time give him a great hand clap of praise? Come on, why don't you do a little bit better than that because he's worthy. And why don't you clap your hands and why don't you lift your voice? to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. If you have your Bible, I'll go to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16. In verse 13 through 19. And as you're finding that, allow me to say that it has been an honor to be with you these last couple of days. And uh, I too have I'm very fond of your pastor and also this great church and uh, it is always an honor of mine to be able to put breaking bread on the calendar every year and um, it's always a joy to be here uh, because you're great people and I love being around you but you also have a love for God you have a hunger for God there's a lot of churches I like going to because I like the people not every time they have the hunger for the things of God. But I believe I'm preaching to a congregation tonight that I like being around you and you like having church. You know, I've, I've come to learn through the years that there is a difference between going to church and then having church when you get there. I know a lot of people that just go to church to kind of mark it off the list and say, well, I went to church today. Um, but when I get to church, I want to have a move of the Holy Ghost. If I'm going to take the time to get ready and make the drive and fight tiredness and weariness and all of those things, when I, when I get to God's house, I want Him to speak to me and talk to me. I want Him to minister to me. And I thank you for that. And I give honor to your pastor and his wife and their family. And uh, thank them again for the room and uh, all the meals and the hospitality. Matthew chapter 16 through verse number 19. Something that the Lord laid on my heart long before I pulled into your city. So I knew I would preach it. I just didn't know what service I'd preach it in. Uh, but this is something that I feel like the Holy Ghost wants to impart into the body of this church. Not just for today and next week and next month, but let it be something that you live with until the day God comes back to get us. Amen. Matthew 16, 13, when Jesus came, to the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? You've told me what they say. Now I want to know who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. I want to preach to you for a little while from the subject, things that happen at the gates of hell. Things that happen 
at the gates of hell. If you want the Lord to speak to you one more time, why don't you lift your hands with me all over this house. And as you lift your hands, why don't you join your voices together one more time. In Jesus' name, Lord, let your perfect will be done in this house. And why don't you give the Lord one more great hand clap of praise this evening? And you may be seated. Thank you for standing. The geographical location of Matthew 16 is something we normally don't consider. It's a very familiar passage to most, if not all of us in the room. But when we begin to read or discuss Matthew 16, we probably never really take the time to notice where all of this took place. But it was very plainly told to us in the Scripture that this incident, this occurrence that we are familiar with happened in the city of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi will only mention twice in the entire Bible, both referring to this very occasion was a city that sat situated some 35 miles north of Galilee where Jesus and the disciples had been involved in previously in ministry. Caesarea Philippi and Galilee were both religious cities of their day, but the religious activities carried out in Caesarea very greatly from those that were carried out in the region, the city of Galilee. Now, we understand that the region of Galilee was rich in Jewish customs. It was rich in Jewish tradition and religion, but Caesarea, when you begin to study it, you find out was a place where idol worship was running rampant. It was a city where immorality and idolatry was at an all-time high. It was a city known in those days as a Roman stronghold, it was the highest and farthest point north in all the land of Palestine. It boasted having the highest elevation or the highest mountain peak throughout all of the land of Israel. Josephus in his writings tells us that the Roman general Titus, who later came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, exhibited his greatest gladiators there at a famous palace where spectators could come and see them on display it was a city, this Caesarea Philippi, it was a city, it was an ultimate city with a mixture of Roman garrison and palace. We understand that in 2023 in America, we have cities in America that have been given nicknames or handles that appropriately describe that very city that we're speaking of in that moment. We understand that Chicago has the nickname or the handle, the Windy City, New York has been called the Big Apple. New Orleans has gained the nickname the Big Easy. Las Vegas is called Sin City, while Detroit is called Motor City. And then we have Hollywood, who carries the nickname Tinseltown. But can I tell you this evening that it has been historically proven that the city of Caesarea Philippi also had a handle it also had a nickname in its day, and the nickname that was given to this city was the Gates of Hell. It was called such because in that city was the Cave of Baal located. And to the pagan minds of those who lived in Caesarea Philippi, they believed that the Cave of Baal created a gateway to the underworld where their gods lived during the winter months. And they believed that when they would look at the opening of that cave, they literally believed that they were looking at the gateway or the entrance or the very gates of hell. Now understand, ladies and gentlemen, that this was a city known throughout the regions for being a literal hellhole. It was almost like the red light district of their day and their generation because Caesarea was a stronghold powerhouse for everything that was anti-God and everything that went against God's plan. 
So may I submit to you this evening that it was not an accident that this very city is the setting of the occasion where Jesus would march his disciples there and bring them to the city at the foot of a familiar mountain that was known throughout the Old Testament. That mountain that set, or the mountain that stood over the city of Caesarea Philippi was the mountain called Mount Hermon. It was in Deuteronomy chapter 4, if you remember, that God had so directed when everybody else, Brother Biddle, uh, was calling Mount Hermon their place of idolatry uh, and calling their, they calling it their place of idolatrous worship. Uh, it was God himself who looked down at Mount Hermon uh, and gave a very strong statement when he said Mount Hermon uh, is Mount Zion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that is an amazing statement to read by God because I believe the Lord was looking down and saying that I want my people to understand that there is no way that you can become so deeply entrenched in sin in any given city that I am not able to walk into that city and say, this city belongs to me. This is why I believe Jesus walked his disciples out of Galilee and he walked them right to the very gates of hell in Caesarea and Jesus was making the eternal statement that in the midst of the immorality and in the midst of the idolatry, I'm going to have a church. In fact, I'm going to build a church and I dare the gates of hell to stop me. You gotta understand, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus made that statement we quote so often, the gates of hell shall not prevail. You've gotta understand that gates were defensive structures in the ancient world. And by Jesus saying the gates of hell will not prevail, he was simply implying that we're gonna have to be on the offense and not on the defense. Because at some point, pastor, if we're gonna have an apostolic church, if we're gonna have a church that's thriving and not just surviving, at some some point we're going to have to take a page out of the hell's playbook and say you know what hell's not defensive but hell's offensive and at some point the church itself has got to be willing to take the fight to hell this is why my bible says the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force ladies and gentlemen if hell's not passive if the devil's not passive it's no time for the church to be passive either there's got to come a time in our life when we just make up our mind like we talked about last night if I've got to fight for revival I'm willing to fight for revival can I tell this congregation uh, that it doesn't matter how bad our world gets uh, and it doesn't matter how bad our nation may be uh, and it even doesn't matter how bad our cities are. Uh, drugs, uh, alcoholism, uh, perversion, uh, immorality, uh, and the list goes on and on. Uh, but I've come to tell this congregation uh, on this Tuesday night uh, that in the midst of all of the immorality uh, and in the midst of all of the idolatry, uh, God can walk into this city uh, and say, this city belongs to me. Just like God looked at Mount Hermon and said, Mount Hermon's Mount Zion. I'm telling this city, I've come to preach to this city. I've come to preach to your city and tell this congregation where sin does abound. Grace can much more abound. Don't you look at how bad it is. Don't look at how bad the world is. God wants us to know that this city belongs to him. God called Mount Hermon, Mount Zion. Zion in the Bible is a type of the church. And I believe God was establishing the fact that I can build my church anywhere I want to build my church. I believe he was letting us understand that it doesn't matter how bad your city is and it doesn't matter how dark your city is. It doesn't matter what hell's trying to do. God can walk into our city and he can tell us one more time, this city belongs to me. Our city sometimes may feel like Mount Hermon with all the immorality and all the idolatry. But when people look at our city and see Mount Hermon, God says, no, I look at your city and I see Mount Zion. I see a place where a church cannot just survive, but a church can thrive. 
God called it Mount Zion. That word Zion means elevation or excellency. It is the highest point there is. And I believe God used that mountain as an object lesson in the Old Testament for the children of Israel. Because the moment God made that statement, Mount Hermon is Mount Zion, at that time it was still a stronghold of the king of Og, who was the remnant of the giants. But God said, I don't care what the enemy's doing. I don't care if they've still got control over that region. That is Mount Zion. And God was establishing the fact that you can have a church and you can have a move of my spirit if you're willing to fight for it and take it and claim it. It wasn't an accident that God or Jesus took his disciples to Caesarea. Now, if I were the one about to teach the lessons to them that Jesus taught them, I probably would have done it in Jerusalem. I probably would have stayed in Galilee. But Jesus said, no, boys, we're going to leave all of the Jewish religion and customs and tradition." And I'm going to walk you right to the very gates of hell. And it's going to be at the gates of hell where I'm going to tell you some things. Can I be honest just for a moment and tell you that if, it, if we were to be safe, I think we're safe in saying that as we look around our world and as we look around even our nation and our cities and our states, it would almost feel like we are living right now in a modern day Caesarea Philippi. There's days that it feels like we're living at the very gates of hell. Those perilous times we read about in the Bible are being fulfilled right now. Men are calling good evil. And they're calling evil good. Immorality is running rampant. Promiscuity is being promoted. Church is being minimized. And Christians are being marginalized. It feels like we're living right where Jesus had taken his disciples. But I've come to tell this congregation that while there were bad things happening at the gates of hell, while there was immorality, and while there was idolatry, I've come to submit to you that there were some good things going on as well because we may be living in a dark, evil, diabolical world. We may be living at the very gates of hell, but there are some good things that can happen. It's exactly what happened in Matthew 16 because can I tell you the first thing that happened at the gates of hell in Caesarea Philippi is Jesus gave his disciples a revelation of truth. Jesus asked the question, did he not? Whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some think you're a prophet. But then Jesus looks at him and says, Now, I want you to tell me, whom do you say that I am? And it was in that moment that Peter throws his hand up. And Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter gets a revelation of truth at the gates of hell. He gets a revelation of who Jesus is in the midst of immorality and idolatry. You've got to understand why this is so amazing to know because in Caesarea Philippi, when you begin to study that city extensively, you find out that that city had shrines built to accommodate the worship to Caesar. It was in that city where they built shrines to worship Pan and Nemesis. And I don't think we got any too young of ears in here, but I'll make the statement and move on. But you got to understand they were so twisted in Caesarea Philippi Philippi, that people would engage in prostitution and immorality and ungodly interactions with animals that served the gods or that represented the gods they served. This is what they done for Pan. This is what they done for Nemesis. It was a hotbed for idolatry. In fact, you could walk up and down the streets of Caesarea and you could buy an idol that you wanted to buy and take home with you. The most famous idol you could buy was an idol of the great Diana whose temple resided in Ephesus. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in the midst of all of that false doctrine, uh, in the midst of all of that idolatry, uh, it was then and there, Brother Biddle, uh, that Jesus gives his disciples uh, the greatest revelation of truth. We are living, yes, in a morally twisted world. We're not just living in a morally twisted world. We are living in a religiously twisted world. You want to talk about confusion? 
Confusion over genders and all of that. There is confusion over this book right here. There's confusion over church itself. There's confusion even when it comes to God. The last time that I read, there's over 4,200 different religions in the world today. And every year it's going to continue to get higher. At this moment right now, there's over 70,000 different denominations. And it will continue to grow. The fact is, you can try this religion and if you don't like it, you can jump to another one. You can try this denomination. If you don't like it, you can jump to another one. There is a flavor for anything that you want, ladies and gentlemen. There's false religions. There's agnosticism. There's atheism. And the list goes on and on. But I've come to tell Breaking Bread this evening that it was in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus gave a revelation of truth to his disciples. And I've come to tell this congregation that in these last days, if there's one thing that's gonna happen at the gates of hell, you better get ready. There is a revelation of truth coming. Can I preach what I feel right now? You better get ready before it's all said and done. There's a revelation coming to people that are hungry. There's a revelation coming to people that are searching for what we've got right now. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. He said, you buy the truth and you sell it not. He said, let God be true and every man a liar. Ladies and gentlemen, that's why my Bible says you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You get a revelation of truth, it'll turn your world around. You get a revelation of who God is, it'll turn your world around. And the first thing that happened at the gates of hell is Jesus gave his disciples a revelation of truth. Brother Bill, I believe with everything inside of me. God gave me this last November, I believe, for this year. But I believe that there is a revelation of truth coming to this world. And there is a revelation of truth coming to our nation. And there's a revelation coming to the state we live in. And there's a revelation of truth coming to the cities that we live in. I believe a revelation of the Godhead is going to come to those that are hungry. People are going to wake up and realize, wait a minute, it's not one God in three and it's not three gods in one. There's only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And we're going to get the revelation that when you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen that one God. I believe that there is a revelation of truth coming, a revelation of the Godhead. I believe there's a revelation of his name coming as well. There's a revelation of truth coming, that there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. There's a revelation of baptism coming. You better get ready, ladies and gentlemen. They're about to come in because there's a world outside these doors who are hungry for truth and it's people that you work with and it's people that you go to school with and it's people that you see every day they're hungry they don't know what they're hungry for but you've got the answer you've got the truth it's time to take what we've got and give it to somebody I believe that same light that came to Saul on the way to Damascus is the same light that's going to come to many in this area. You remember Saul? I know he becomes Paul later on. But before he's Paul, he's a murderer. He's killing Christians. He's killing Christians who he believes are trying to do away with the law of Moses. That's how dogmatic he was about the law. In fact, I think it's Acts chapter 7. He's on the way, or Acts 9. He is on the way to Damascus with papers in his hand to kill more Christians. And all of a sudden, this light shines from heaven and knocks him off. Saul looks up and says, who are you? And the voice comes back, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And the Bible says... He is smitten with blindness. But there's a man by the name of Ananias who's been given orders. There's a man coming who needs you. What's his name? Saul. 
Now, you mean the same guy that's killing all of my friends? The one and the same. But you know what? God loved Saul so much that he wasn't going to leave him in darkness. <laughs> this is what's amazing. I love the story of Ananias and Saul because the name Ananias is a Hellenized masculine form of the word grace. When grace found Saul, it didn't leave him in darkness. That's why the Bible says he got up and he was baptized and he got the Holy Ghost. Man, I feel my Holy Ghost right now. I'm telling you the same light that knocked Saul off back then is the same light that's about to come to people in this area. You better get ready, breaking bread, because they're coming. They're coming because the first thing that Jesus done is he gave a revelation of truth. I've all, we've all heard stories about monks overseas waking up and there's an angel in the room. I've heard stories that Jesus appeared to monks and they said, who are you? He said, my name's Jesus. Find somebody and follow me. My thing is, if he can do it over there, he can do it right here in Indiana. Because my Bible says he's no respecter of persons. If he'll reveal truth to hungry monks over there, he'll reveal truth to hungry people in your neighborhood and hungry people in your school. You better get ready. You better be glad you got a bigger building because if there's one thing that's gonna happen, there is a revelation of truth coming. Can I tell you the second thing that happened? The gates of hell is after Jesus gave a revelation of truth. He then gives Peter a revelation of who he is. Whom do men say that I am? Some say you're Jeremiah, Isaiah, one of the prophets. Whom do you say that I am? You're the Christ. Peter has a revelation of who Jesus is. And if we just stop at the revelation of who he is, it is an incomplete revelation. Now, hear me out before you throw me out. I know a lot of people, Brother Biddle, who know the revelation of the mighty God in Christ. I know people that can quote every one God scripture. I know people that you can't shake them on the mighty God in Christ. But those same people who know the mighty God in Christ have no idea who they are in Christ. See, it's possible to know who he is. And at the same time, you don't know who you are. Because Jesus said, Peter, I'm glad that you know who I am. Now let me return the favor and tell you who you are. Thou art Peter. Isn't it amazing this is the first time Simon is given a name besides Simon? Jesus said, I know who you are. You've always been labeled Simon. You've always been called Simon. Simon means weak. It means frail. It means unstable. But Jesus said, Simon, there's something inside of you that you don't even know is inside of you right now. And I'm not calling you Simon anymore, but I'm calling you Peter. Because you're no longer unstable. You're a rock. You're firm. Can I tell this congregation uh, that it's time for us, yes, thank God for the revelation of the mighty God in Christ, uh, but it's time for somebody to take another step uh, and get a revelation of who you are in Christ. I'm going to tell you, hell is fear in the day. When some apostolics and a lot of churches wake up and realize uh, I'm more than just somebody that goes to church two or three times a week. I'm more than just somebody that pays my tithes and gives offering and keep doing it. It's biblical. But there's so much more to it than that. Don't just be satisfied coming to service after service and sitting on a pew and living your life unfulfilled. Hell is afraid of the day that some apostolics are going to wake up and realize if God gave me the Holy Ghost, he gave me a purpose. If God gave me a spirit, he gave me an anointing. And it's time for me to walk. It's time for me to walk in that anointing. They say every individual that's born has two days that'll forever define them. The first day is the day you're born. The second day is the day you realize why you were born. 
and I refuse to live my life feeling like I have no place in the kingdom of God. My Bible says every joint supplieth. Meaning if you're in the body of Christ, you supply to the body of Christ somewhere, somehow. But that's why the devil tries to convince you that since you're not, your, since you're not a preacher or a Sunday school teacher, you have no ministry. I see this a lot. I know a lot of people right now who are faithful to church, faithful to prayer meetings, faithful to events, faithful to revival services. But the devil has convinced them since you don't hold a microphone and since you don't stand on the platform, you really don't have much value. He'll try to convince us all you are is just a tithe payer. All you are is just somebody that just pours money in the church and you get nothing in return. <laughs> Boy, I'm waiting off into something. I better get back. Let, let, me, let me expose that lie right now because every person in the body of Christ has a ministry. You may never preach a sermon. You may never sing a special. You may never play an instrument. You may never teach a Sunday school class. You may never be a sound individual. But my Bible says, Paul writes to the church and says, God has given all of us the ministry of reconciliation. Can I tell somebody in this room that I believe one of the greatest ministries anybody can walk in is the ministry of reconciliation. Well, what is the ministry of reconciliation? That's what the Bible says when it says God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, there was a breach created between God and man. And the only way to fill that breach was for Jesus to be born. And the Bible says God was in Christ, reconciling or bringing back humanity to himself. You want to know what the ministry of reconciliation is? It is the ministry that so many people fail to realize they have. It is a ministry when you can leave these walls and you can go out into the world that you live in and you can find somebody broken, you can find somebody damaged, you can find somebody that's been ran over by life and left for dead. But you know what? You can have a ministry of reconciliation. You can look at that individual who's given up on life and say there's a God in the church I go to who wants to reconcile reconcile you. There's a God that I serve that wants to save you and give you purpose in your life. Now we love to quote we love to quote Colossians 2 and 9 for in him Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily but you better keep quoting because while in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily he also says, and ye are complete in him. You get a revelation of who Jesus is, he in return is going to give you a revelation of who you are. Because he doesn't just want us to live our life feeling like we're unfulfilled and we have no purpose. Peter, I got to tell you who you are. Because if you don't know who you are, you'll never preach Pentecost. If you don't know who you are, you'll never preach the greatest message this world is ever going to hear. Peter, I need you to know who you are because when you understand who you are, you'll pray differently. Thou art Peter, and whatever you bind on earth is going to be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose. Do you understand when you get a revelation of who you are in Christ, your prayers will change drastically. Because when you get a revelation of who you are in him, you'll pray with an authority that you never prayed with before. You'll pray with a boldness and a confidence that I'm not just saying words that's going to bounce off the ceiling and fall back down. But if I bind something in the earth, God's going to respond and bind it in heaven. And if I lose something in the earth, he's going to respond and loose it in heaven. Can I tell you, there's a third thing that happens at the gates of hell and I'm hurrying. Not only does Jesus give us a revelation of truth and not only does he give us a revelation of who we are, but he also makes the declaration that upon this rock, 
I will build my church. The reason why the church is still thriving today in the earth is because it's his church. It's not my church. It's not your church. Because I didn't bleed for it. And I didn't die for it. And I don't think you did either. You see, the reason why the church is still thriving and not just surviving is because it's his church. And Revelation number three goes back to Revelation number one. The reason why the church is still alive is because Jesus said upon this rock, I'll build my church. Now I'm glad Jesus said this and not me. I'll just repeat what he said. When I read that, I get the understanding that Jesus is not going to defend every church. Jesus is not going to fight for every church. He said the only church the gates of hell will not prevail against is the church who sits on the revelation of the foundation of who I am. That's why the church of the name of Jesus is still thriving because we got the understanding that if the church is still going to be here, it can't be built on my ideas and it can't be built on your theology. It's got to be built on what that book says. It's got to be built on who's the one that died for it. That's the one that the church has got to be built on. The book of Ephesians tells us that there is a church in the grave right now, Brother Biddle. There is an invisible church in the grave. The context of that is there's people who have come and gone all throughout the years who have died in the faith and they're waiting on that day for the trumpet to sound because my Bible says the dead in Christ are going to rise first. You've got friends and you've got family members who died in the faith and they're in the grave right now. Can I tell everybody in this room that if no other person in this world ever gets baptized or gets the Holy Ghost, God's already got a church in the grave. But the good news is that's not the only invisible church the Bible speaks of. Because while there is an invisible church in the grave waiting for that day for the trumpet to sound, Jesus made the statement that I have sheep, not of this fold, but them I must also bring. Can I tell you that another part of God's church are those who have not yet come to the church, but they will come to the church when God begins to call them. Can I tell this congregation right now in the Holy Ghost uh, what there is in this room right now uh, is not all there will be. Uh, what's sitting on these pews tonight uh, isn't all God has planned for this church. Uh, the reason why the church is still growing uh, and the reason why the church is still thriving uh, is because it's his church. And he said, I'll add to the church daily such as should be saved. Because it's his church, I cannot have a preference as to who comes into the church and who doesn't. <laughs> Here's another thing the Lord's been working on me about, and that's prodigals, backsliders. I believe that there is a revelation of truth coming to people who have never heard this message. But I also believe there is a restoration of people coming that have heard this message, but they walked away from it. The story of the prodigal boy has been on my mind for months uh, because there's a powerful statement in that story uh, that says while the prodigal's in the pig pen, uh, while he's already wasted the inheritance, so far away from the father's house, the Bible says there was a day that he came to himself. The light bulb came on and he remembered, wait a minute, there's a house I can go to. There's a father that's probably waiting on me to come back. And what I love about the story is the Bible says when the father saw him a long way off, the father didn't wait for him to get back into the house to greet him. The father ran out to meet him, meaning, 
meaning that there's backsliders who have come and gone through this church. And the Father, the Good Shepherd, God, is looking out the windows of this, this sanctuary and he's anticipating the day that they come back to themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, if God's going to go out and get them, we might as well go out and meet them too on their way back. I don't care what they said. I don't care why they left. I don't care what they've done while they've been away. You better not get a spirit of the older brother and resent them when they come back. He's going to build his church. But there was a fourth thing that happened, and I'm hurrying. The fourth thing is, after Jesus gave them a revelation of truth, and after he gave them a revelation of who they are, and after he gave them the revelation that I will have a church, it is then in that moment that disciples realize that they cannot do any of this without him. Read the story in context when you have time. The disciples come in contact with a boy who is demon-possessed. The Bible says he was so possessed that he would throw himself in the water and then in the fire. In the water and in the fire. And the Bible says the disciples could not cast that devil out. Now that is amazing because only four or five chapters earlier, Jesus had given them authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cast out devils. And so if they've got the authority to take care of that, why can't they? It's because now, ladies and gentlemen, they're standing at the gates of hell. They are standing in the midst of immorality and idolatry. And I believe there's a different breed of spirits you've got to deal with when you find yourself at the gates of hell. We talked about it last night. We right now in America are dealing with things that we never dreamt we would have dealt with 15 years ago. I've been out of high school 18 years and there's things right now that our kids are going through that I never thought they'd have to deal with just 18 years later. And I don't have to get into all of it. You know what I'm talking about. This antichrist agenda that people are pushing on our kids. and This spirit of confusion is trying to grip and grab a hold of their mind. My Bible says God is not the author of confusion. And if I'm confused about anything, it did not come from God. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, right now, being so close to the coming of the Lord, we're going to deal with things that we've never dealt with before. And we cannot do it without God's help. We are insufficient alone. We cannot manufacture the move of God that we want and need. It's at this moment in their weakness, their inability to take care of the spirit, it is then that Jesus tells them, I've got a remedy for this. These things only come out but by prayer and fasting. That is the only time in the Gospels those two words are used together, prayer and fasting. And isn't it amazing that Jesus said, I'm going to use these two words standing at the gates of hell. Are you going to talk about prayer? And you better believe I am. You going to talk about fasting? You better believe I am. Because if we're going to have the revival God wants us to have, and if we're going to experience the move of God's Spirit, we want to experience it's not going to happen without prayer and fasting. How many times do we wonder why nothing is breaking and nothing is changing and strongholds aren't being destroyed? It's in that moment we have to remind ourselves that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by His Spirit, saith the Lord. Every now and again, we just have to remind ourselves that our sermons aren't good enough. And our songs sometimes aren't good enough. But there's going to be times that we've just got to get back to the basics of prayer and fasting. If we're going to have the spiritual breakthrough that we want to have in these last days. You know what prayer is? It's us admitting we can't do it without his help. But you know what prayerlessness is? 
It's us telling him we can do it without his help. Every day that I don't pray is me telling God I don't need you today. You don't know why, fle- why fasting is so looked down on? And I hate fasting as much as anybody else. I'm just going to be honest. But you know why fasting is so vital and important? It kills your flesh. And flesh doesn't want to die. But if we're going to have the revival at the gates of hell that we want to have, we can't do it without his help. We're going to have to pray more than we've ever prayed before. And we're going to have to fast more than we've ever fasted before. And it's at this moment, in their weakness, we come to the fifth and final point. They're at the gates of hell. They spent six days on a 35-mile mountain climb. Look at the geography on a map if you get time. From Galilee to Caesarea Philippi was 35 miles uphill. And it took them six days to get from Galilee to Caesarea at the base of that mountain. I can't imagine hiking 35 miles at a steady incline. Only then to hear Jesus say, boys, I know you're tired and I know you're weary, but I am now inviting you to come up a little bit higher. What do you mean climb higher? We've hiked 35 miles in six days. You took us out of all of the religion and all the tradition that we grew up on and now you brought us right to the gates of hell. And you want us to climb a little more? Jesus says, boys, if you can muster up a little more energy, there's going to be something on top of that mountain I'll show you. I believe, Brother Biddle, this is where the church is right now. I believe we are living right exactly where they were. We're at the gates of hell. And I believe I'm preaching to a congregation of people that's tired of fighting devils that won't budge. I believe you're tired of feeling like you're spinning your wheels every now and again, not going anywhere. We've prayed and we've fasted, but you know what? There were three men who said, Jesus, I'm tired and I'm weary, but I'll climb a little higher. And when you read the story in context, the mountain that those three men climbed was the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus took them to the top of that mountain. Only three out of 12 went. Only 25% of the church was willing to go a little higher. But it was on top of that mountain that the Bible says Jesus begins to be glorified. Light is not shining on him. Light is shining from him. It was in that moment that Peter, James, and John saw him in all of his splendor, glory, majesty, and power. They're amazed because I've seen him walk on water, but I've never seen that before. I've seen him raise the dead, but I've never seen that before. I've seen him heal withered hands and open up blinded eyes and cleanse lepers. But there was something happening on top of that mountain that they had never seen before. God began to radiate his glory through the man Jesus. The Bible says when they come off that mountain, people looked at him and they were amazed because of the glory that was shining from him. And in that moment, he went to that boy and he cast the devil out. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying this, that in these last days, it's going to have to take more prayer and fasting than it's ever taken before. It's going to take a group of people that say, you know what, I'm tired and I'm weary like we talked about last night. But there's a glory on top of that mountain. There is a glory on top of that mountain that I will not experience if I don't finish climbing the mountain. As they make their way to the keyboard this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, I've simply come to tell this great church on the last night of this revival that there is a place in the spirit God wants us to walk in. I believe there is a dimension of God's glory he wants us to see.
And God says, I'm going to do it right at the very gates of hell. I believe God is setting the stage for his church in these last days to be a spectacle to this world. I do not believe that God is going to come back after a church any less than what he left. And I believe in these last days, Brother Biddle, God is setting the stage for the apostolic church to see his glory and to experience the supernatural and the miraculous that we never have before. If you want to see that, I wonder if you could stand all over this room right now and lift your hands. Come on, I wonder if there's a congregation in this room who would say, you know what, I'm thankful for what God's done here. But I want to see more glory at the other building. I thank God for all the miracle signs and wonders that we've experienced here. But when we move down that road, just a few miles, I want to see His glory in a way that I've never seen before. I want to see more people repent and be baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost. I want to see more people have their marriages and their lives put back together. It's going to happen, folks, if we're willing to keep climbing the mountain. I feel in this room tonight there is a call going forth. I believe that there is a call from heaven to this congregation saying that if you want it, you can have it if you're willing to keep climbing. If you want it right now, I wonder if you could lift your hands and just begin to talk to the Lord. I'm done preaching. But I wonder that this moment right now, this service, this point of decision would propel us into greater places than we've ever been before. I know it's dark. I know it can be depressing and discouraging when we look at our world and the condition it's in. But we've got a promise, ladies and gentlemen, that there's going to be light in the evening time. If you want it, I wonder if you could just step out of your pew as a sign that, God, I want it more than anything else. And if you can, just come stand around the front. If you've got to stand along the sides, it's fine. We're going to enter into a a season of prayer and just however long God will keep us here. But I believe the Holy Ghost is issuing the call to this great congregation of people. Brother Bill, I believe there's a glory on top of that mountain that you've never seen, this church has never experienced. If we're willing to do what it takes. If we're willing to pray and fast more than we've ever prayed and fasted. Come on right now, why don't you reach for him as they begin to sing and play whatever they feel to do right now.